0: pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you for this morning and for another opportunity to meet together. It's the highlight of our week that we get the opportunity to come together, us and our children, and with our beloved nuclear family in Christ here at Calvary Bible Church. And we praise you, Father, and we ask that you would You would help us this morning to grasp what your spirit has to say to the church, especially to the men of this church, especially to any one of the men who may be thinking about entering ministry as a life calling and career. Father, we pray that you you would give us grace in this regard, that you would raise up men in this church to lead not just in this time, not just in this generation, but in the ones to come. And We ask you, Father, to do it. We are completely dependent upon you, and yet you've called us to act and to move and to make decisions and to pray. And so, Father, we, we need your help. Help us to understand, help us to see the priority and the great responsibility that your church has, especially the leaders of your church. And then give us the grace to follow you wherever you lead, whether in life or in death, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. If you're new with with us, welcome. And uh, we're just working our way verse by verse through this passage of Scripture. There's so much here. Uh, Last week, we really only managed to cover one verse. Uh, By God's grace, we'll do more than that today. You remember last time we revisited the challenge of Timothy's assignment to serve as kind of the pastoral leader and apostolic representative at the church of Ephesus. It's just important that you remember, Timothy is at Ephesus, right? He's not at Corinth, he's not at Laodicea, he's not in Crete, he is in Ephesus, and we refreshed our understanding of the problems that he was facing in that church, unqualified elders, false teachers, passive men, aggressive women, just to name a few, and we were kind of going over that list in small group this past week, and, I, and it occurred to me that that is, and, and the whole description last week, really described Calvary Bible Church in the early 90s. All of the problems listed in 1 Timothy really Uh, had had the same root issues at, at what is now Calvary Bible Church 25 years ago, and the Lord was gracious to us. We were also reminded of the critical detail that Paul is in jail. He's not just in jail, he's imprisoned in Rome, and this is going to be his last imprisonment. We know historically his life and ministry were just about finished. At the end of this letter, he will declare that to Timothy, that he had fought a good fight, he had finished his course. So he's coming to the end. And Timothy is going to be the one to pick up the mantle. But that was not going to be an easy task, picking up the mantle, meaning he's going to take over wherever Paul leaves off. And what Paul is asking Timothy to do will require great boldness, great wisdom, great strength. But this is what we know about Timothy. Timothy struggles with timidity. There have been signs of cowardice in his life. He suffered from uh, weakness, self imposed, self inflicted, just as, and, and we go through this list of, of uh, negative characteristics in Timothy's life, and if we're honest, we all have to say, yeah, that sounds like me too. And that's why this passage is so powerful for, for us, because it speaks to our weaknesses. Weakness itself, however, in the economy of God is not a disqualifier from ministry, not weakness. In fact, the living Christ delights most to move in power in the world through those who are weak, so that it may be obvious to everyone that the power is from God to the glory of God. Paul understood this dynamic, and here's how he would describe it. When I am weak, then I am strong. And he knew Timothy was aware of this as well. In fact, we invested all of the sermon time last week addressing that one main theme found in that first verse of this chapter. Before we dive back into this passage this morning, however, let's uh, do what we always do. I know you're here because you want to hear from God. And you already have once this morning by the reading of his word. Let's do it again. Let's stand, and we will read 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many Witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share in the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Now, last week I pointed out two themes and never really made it past the first one. (laughs) This week I'm feeling a little more ambitious, and so I want to consider three themes, That will kind of carry us through verse 7. And here they are. The first one is from last week Christ's powerful provision, verse 1. Secondly, the pastor's essential mission, verse 2. And then the Christian's preoccupation. And that'll go from verses 3 through 7. We'll probably spend the least amount of time there. Now, the first one is kind of easy because, as I said, we covered it last week, but let's just take a few minutes to review. First of all, Christ's powerful provision. And there are, there are some times when when I'm done preaching, and within the next couple of days I find out that a portion of Scripture really struck a nerve, and that was true last week. And, um, and so many of you talked about how that how this text affected you, how the words of this text, the meaning of these words affected you and encouraged you. And I praise God for that. And just understand, that's not this preacher. This is this book. This is God's word. And so uh, I can't reproduce that. (laughs) Uh, Only the Spirit can do that. And I praise God for the work that he did in, in our hearts last week. The question that we asked last week was this? Where does a timid person find the power to be courageous when he finds himself face to face with a ministry opportunity that feels intimidating? What do you do then? Where do you get the courage? That's what Timothy needed, and he didn't have it. And we don't find this kind of courage and power in, in, our, in our own strength. We don't look inwardly because there's there's nothing there to help us. Rather, we find it in the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ. Paul says, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. And we learned last time that the kind of grace that Paul is referring to is unmerited assistance. Unmerited assistance. Now, if I were to ask you what the definition of grace is, some of you would say, Grace is unmerited favor. And that's not wrong. In fact, that's very correct. Or you might say it's God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, right? Uh, That's correct, but that's not what he's referring to here. He's not talking about the grace of salvation. He's not talking about considering us righteous in Christ. He's talking about power. He's talking about enablement. This is un. Unmerited, as all grace is, every gift, if it's truly a gift, is unmerited. It is unmerited assistance, whereby Christ himself helps us as we humble ourselves and admit our dependence and ask for his help and then move out, trusting that he will help and then thanking him for what he will accomplish through us. The point of the whole message last week was that this is how God wants us to minister, not from a position of personal strength or power, but from a position of dependence upon Christ. My favorite extra-biblical hero is David Brainerd, and we wouldn't know about David Brainerd if it wasn't for the fact that Jonathan Edwards published a um, edited journal from David Brainerd, and Brainerd, young David Brainerd, who led the... Great Awakening Among the Indians in New Jersey. Yes, there was a Great Awakening in New Jersey. Um, He loved to say uh, that there was nothing that he delighted to do more than to be on his face in the dust before the Lord. And and his life and his ministry was the perfect example of this. How he would preach to the Indians and he was so sick. He had tuberculosis and he didn't know it. Anything you know? Anything that was kind of a lung issue, a coughing issue, or uh, they just called it consumption. What does he have? He has consumption. It's like when a doctor says you have a virus. What does that mean? Right? We don't know. It's just you're sick. <laughs> and he was sick, and he was sick all the time. There were times when he could only preach from uh, his bed. Um, and 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 he finally got a diagnosis that he had consumption. He was coughing up blood and. And he said, you know, I, I praise God, and I thank, I thank the Lord that it has now been revealed that my problem is not laziness. He was just fearful that he was a slacker because he couldn't preach as much as he felt like he should, but he was sick. And he would preach to the Indians, and, and just a little bit of background on that story. He shows up in a place called Cross Weekson, which ended up being walking distance from where I grew up. Isn't that a, a, a weird providence? A place called Crosswicks In. he shows up, he'd, he'd been ministering all over New England and, and Pennsylvania and New York, and, and he comes down to New Jersey. He's about ready to quit. He's a legend, both in America, in, in the colonies, and in, in England, because people have heard about him ro- roaming through the dense forests of New England and New Jersey, and, and nobody was receiving his message. He had a translator by the name of Moses. His translator was an unbeliever. And eventually Moses came to Christ, but after, after those years, he finally was, he was almost willing to give up. He had several churches that had offered him a, a really wonderful opportunity to be the pastor of their large congregations. He kept turning it down, but he wrote in his journal one day, I'm going to a place called Cross Weekson. I hear there are some Indians I haven't reached yet, and if they reject the gospel, I'm going to take one of those big churches. And he goes down there, and he finds some women and children, and he ministers to them the word through his now-believing translator. And when he gets done ministering to them, he he simply says, if you want to hear more, come back tomorrow. And they come back tomorrow, and there's more of them. If you want to hear more, come back tomorrow. They come back tomorrow, and there's more of them. Now there's men. And they start gathering by the tens and twenties and thirties, and before long, there's hundreds of them. And he said, "I, I said very little about the wrath of God. I preached the love of Christ. And he said, this is amazing, he said, it was almost as if God did the work without means. In other words, what he meant was, I did nothing. I did nothing. All I did was present the book, the the words, and not even all the words. I didn't talk to them necessarily about judgment. And the Holy Spirit came and moved in Brainerd's utter, dire, persistent weakness but it was weakness with faithfulness, as he could. This is a kind of fruitfulness that comes from dependence upon the Lord. Um, I hope that you, by God's grace, will get in the habit of every day just talking to God and talking to your own heart about how dependent you are. And do it in a way that's different from the world. And in the world's eyes, that's a bad thing, For us, it's it's, it's the source. It's the source of our strength. It's the kind of fruitful dependence exemplified in the relationship between a grapevine and its branches. Connected to the vine, who is Christ, John 15 says, the branch can produce much fruit. Apart from the vine, however, Jesus says, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, Brent Osterberg and I were one time in a um, in trying to decide whether I can name the country. We were in a country in in uh, East Asia, and uh, they took us out to dinner, and it was uh, uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful place, a very unusual place to have dinner. And we looked over, and one of the things they love to do is they build these lattices in the in the open courtyard, and they have vines, grape vines, growing over them. And uh, everybody was talking, and we were sitting on the platform with our legs crossed, very painful, and um, eating dinner. And I look across the courtyard, and uh, I was trying to trace where the, the vine was. There are all these branches, but where is where's the source? Where is the vine? And I started looking, and I, and I look over, and when I think of a, a grapevine, I think of something that's, you know, maybe as thick as my thumb. And I realized... Across the courtyard, there was this tree. I thought it was a tree. And it was a grapevine, and it was this big around. And I looked at Brent, and everybody was talking, I said, Brent, look at that. And he said, what? I said, that's the vine, <laughs> those are the branches, that's Christ, this is us, this massive, massive, life-giving vine. Beloved, that's the picture here. We are dependent, not on this little bitty weak thing. We're dependent on the source of all things, the source of all life, the first cause, the uncaused cause, who is God himself. This is the thing Paul wants Timothy to remember as he prepares to take the mantle of his ministry, Paul's ministry, He understands that faithful churches are always only one generation away from losing the gospel, and will lose the gospel if they don't stay attached to the vine. And so if the church of Ephesus is going to thrive into the next generation, its leaders have to live and minister from a position of dependence upon Christ, because when we are weak, then we are strong." And this brings us to the second theme of our text, namely the pastor's essential mission. And this is in verse 2. So let's read verse 2 again. And Paul says this, speaking to Timothy, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now as the acting pastor of the church of Ephesus, Timothy's primary job was to make sure the church did not lose the gospel. It had the gospel. Paul had built this church. He had planted it. And so they knew the gospel. But it was a first century church. They, didn't, they knew what the gospel was. They weren't sure what it wasn't. There, there was so much more that they needed to learn. They, they had to learn the whole counsel of God on his watch. And he needed not only to teach sound words, sound doctrine to present the members of the Ephesian church complete in Christ, but he had to also make provision for their loyalty and fidelity to Christ even after both Paul and Timothy himself are gone. And by the way, after Paul is arrested and killed, Timothy will be arrested. I'll show you that in weeks ahead. If the church of Ephesus was going to remain faithful in the next generation, other men needed to be trained they needed to be trained in theology and the doctrine of the Bible. They needed to be trained to, to shepherd God's people properly with his truth. And notice how Paul states his charge. He says to Timothy, take what, to take what he has heard from Paul, and, and notice Paul says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. These things pass on. What you have heard, and it, and it provokes the question, What exactly did he hear from Paul? What did he hear from Paul? Well, if we were to take the time to trace it out in the four chapters of 2 Timothy, here's what we would discover. What did Timothy hear? Chapter one, verse eight. He heard the testimony of the Lord and the gospel. Chapter one, verse 13. He heard the standard of sound words, verse 14, the treasure or good deposit which has been entrusted to you. Chapter 2, verse 9, the word of God, verse 15, the word of truth, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, the truth, verse 15, the sacred writings, verse 16, the scriptures, chapter 4, verse 2, the word Verse three, sound teaching. Verse seven, the faith. Chapter four, verse 15, our message. And then we could go back to 1 Timothy where we would discover all of those things all over again with the addition of Paul saying in chapter one, verse 11 of 1 Timothy, he calls it this, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Or as, since we're talking about David Brainerd. David Brainerd interpreted it like this. The word blessed means happy. This is encouraging. The gospel of the glory of the happy God. This is the God who for all eternity has been content in himself. Now, let there be no mistake, beloved, what Christ had entrusted to Paul in 1 Timothy 1, Paul had entrusted to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, and now Timothy is commanded to entrust it to faithful men who will be able to entrust it to others, also, who presumably will entrust it to others. And teaching the Word of God to men who will faithfully deliver it to the next generation is the sacred trust of every pastor and every elder team. If we don't do this, we fail. You get it? It's not about building buildings, and, and we are about to build one, a, a small one, an expensive small one. <laughs> um, anything you build is expensive these days. But it's not about buildings, and it's not about pews. If you could come to, with me to some of the places of worship that I see in, in countries in Eastern Asia and in Siberia and other places where they meet for worship, uh, you would probably weep to think of how good we have it here. You feel cramped? You feel hot? Get over it. It's nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters experience every day. Every day. And and, and they gladly bear it if they can meet with one another to the glory of Christ. This is a sacred trust. We must Preserve the gospel for the next generation, and the only way to do that is to train men, train to create teachers. Just as the word of God creates faith in the heart of the child of God, it also creates the gifting and the ability to minister, to serve. This is a sacred trust. By the way, the word entrust here in the ESV means to give something To another for safekeeping. I love the fact that part of the translation of the NAS refers to the good deposit as the treasure, the treasure, the treasure, the treasure. This is really important because the transmission of biblical truth must never be left to chance. You can't say, you know what, I'm going to do funerals and I'm going to do weddings and I'm going to preach my favorite text and give pep talks and and, and, you know, when I'm done, gee, I, I just hope things work out for this church. Rather, we, we need to be planning for it. We need to be planning for it. I mean, there are going to be a day when, when I don't enter this room on Sunday morning. It may be next week. I don't know. You don't know. I have often said I'm not the first pastor of Calvary Bible Church. I'm the fifth. And if if the Lord doesn't return, there'll be more. And who knows who they'll be. But we have to be faithful while we have the opportunity to train men to take the doctrine of the Word of God, the truth of Scripture, and pass it on so that the next generation will not lose the gospel. In the context here, it's, it's this treasure, this truth, this Word from God is not committed generally to every Christian. This is is not an every Christian thing. Only, rather, to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. And not everybody fits that description. And and you can't necessarily manufacture that. God calls men to do that. And he he calls us sometimes in... in, (laughs) I don't want to say extraordinary ways, in very subtle ways. I had no idea that he was calling me to be the pastor of any church. In fact, uh, most of you know my story. Um, I-, I resolved when I was in seminary. You know, Paul said, this one thing I do, I used to say, this one thing I will not do. <laughs> I will not be a pastor of a church. I- I'm happy to help. I'm happy to be the number two guy. In fact, there was a guy, the associate pastor of our very large church in in. Um, uh, when my wife and I were in college, uh, was, a, was an old gentleman who was in his, had to be pushing 80 when we were there, Dr. Faulkner. He was the associate pastor of the church. And uh, the senior pastor, who was uh, a very well-known guy among independent, fire-breathing, Baptist bride, Baptist churches, um, he, uh, he had stepped down. And for a while, we, weren't, we didn't have a pastor. But Dr. Faulkner stepped in, and, and he kept saying, listen, I am not your pastor, I'm temporary. I'm the associate pastor. I'm here to help. We're going to find we're going to find a leader who God will call to lead this church. I'm here to help. And I thought, I'm that guy. That's a, I mean that's a dignified that's a role that I, I could just see myself being associate pastor forever. No idea that the Lord would put me here. But the Lord calls men and he gifts men and then he puts them where he wants them so that the gospel will be Available to the next generation. The word in trust is a stewardship word. Paul received his teaching as a stewardship from Christ. Timothy received it as a stewardship from Paul. And now other men will be called upon to be stewards of God's treasure. Timothy's mission is to successfully deposit the treasure into the care of others. Other, other men, other faithful men, not an easy task, not an easy task. This is difficult work, and this is the whole context here, and notice what Paul is going to say in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier. This is not easy work, despite the jokes about, I thought you only worked on Sunday, <laughs> um, Some days, I I wish. It's difficult for at least two reasons. First, because there are always forces at work to rob the church of the treasure of the gospel and the whole counsel of God. There are always forces at work to rob the church of its treasure. For example, in the years that preceded the Reformation, it seemed that the light of the word of God, the gospel, had all been but but extinguished. Put out. The church had lost the clear teaching of Scripture. The established religious leaders of the day had hidden the scriptures under the veil of a language that the common people couldn't even understand. You would go to church and, and the preaching would be in a language you couldn't understand. My, my mother talks about this. She grew up Catholic. It wasn't until 1964 when Vatican II happened and the, and the church allowed, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church allowed their priests to proclaim the homily in English. Can you imagine 1964? Before that, they were only allowed to preach in Latin. My mother went to church all the time. Every week, plus confessions in between. And she would hear the sermon in Latin. She didn't know Latin. She didn't know Latin. Right? And some of, some of you who came out of the Roman Catholic Church, you know what I'm talking about if you're old enough. It was in Latin. I mean, it might as well be in Yiddish. I mean, it doesn't matter. If it's a language I can't understand, who cares what language it is? It was the language that that was considered the priestly language. It was the exalted language. You, You can't have the word of God in any language other than Latin. Latin is God's language. And so the people would come because they had to come. But the word of God was veiled. Moreover, whenever it was discovered that someone was attempting to translate the scriptures into the language of the people, whether that be German or French or English, the authorities sought those men to hunt them down and burn them at the stake. Almost happened to Luther. It did happen to Tyndall and others. I read the account of one man who was arrested and burned because he taught his children the lord's prayer in english in our day the real danger however is not that the word of god is unavailable but that it's hidden under the the camouflage of pray pragmatic religiosity when people come to church not so much to hear the word of the Lord, but to hear practical tips for life with scriptures pasted to them to make it sound Christian or to make it feel like you're actually hearing the word of the Lord when you're not. In some of these churches, I had, I had the privilege to talk to a young man recently. who was, uh, and, and, and this is common. Um, and it became clear that he grew up in the church, in church experiences, places where they were having religious experiences, and places that you know about. And after years and years and years and years, I mean, more than a decade of being involved with these churches, I asked them about the gospel. No idea. No idea. You know what? Those churches, they're really not churches, they're crowds. They're gatherings of religious people. If you don't have the gospel there, you don't have the church. You don't have the church. It doesn't matter if it, if it sounds Christian. It's not. It's not. Beloved, this is what happens when the leadership is not careful to take the treasure and pass it on to faithful men who will entrust it to others also. Sooner or later, your church may continue meeting. You may be able to draw a crowd with, with your shenanigans and your dog and pony show and your concert-like music and, and your, your happy tips for how to have a better marriage or, or business or whatever it is. You may still be able to draw a crowd, and certainly that's happening all over the country. But you're not a church, and there will be a day of reckoning. One day, through the prophet Amos, God said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will, now don't miss these words, I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. You know what this is? It's just like Romans 1. This is the judgment of abandonment. This is what, when God says, uh, is that what you want? Is that what you want in church? Have it. And they'll have everything. And Paul talks to Timothy about this. The day is coming when they will not want to hear sound words. But they'll keep gathering. They'll keep gathering. They'll keep meeting together. They'll keep doing their religious things. They'll keep stamping their psychological ideas or their... their uh, their life-hacking philosophies with Bible verses. I want to suggest to you that we are living in a time of such spiritual famine, and it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And, And please don't misunderstand me. This is not, Calvary Bible Church is not the only place that's preaching the Word of God. Praise God. We pray for men almost every Sunday morning who we know are being faithful with the gospel. And they're being faithful in Fort Worth and extended uh, metroplex areas. Uh, we're not the only show in town. God has, has always got his remnant. God has always got people. God has always got faithful ministers. But I'm telling you, the famine, the spiritual famine, is getting harsher and harsher and harsher. In this kind of spiritual climate, if you are going to proclaim the gospel of the blessed God, you will always be shouting into the wind. And you will always be paddling against the current of the religious world. And there will always be evangelicals who will try to convince you that the Bible can't be trusted. Either it's Either it's wrong on creation or it's wrong on hell or it's unclear about justification or that we need to distance ourselves from the Old Testament. It's wrong on marital roles or it's wrong on human gender or whatever else is perceived to be unfashionable, unscientific, unloving, or insensitive to the spirit of the age. And I'm not just talking about mainline denominations. I'm talking about evangelical churches. We expect the mainline denominations. They've already rejected Christ. What, what would we expect? And so the job of successfully passing gospel treasure to the next generation is difficult because of the spirit of the age. And the work of faithful pastors and the faithful church is always an uphill climb. I always feel like in the culture, and, and more and more, you're pushing the boulder uphill, and the boulder keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And harder to push. And secondly, I said there were a couple of reasons. Second, it's a difficult job because it's not easy to find men who will do it. It may surprise you to learn that it's never been easy to find and train faithful men to fulfill this mission. Even at Calvary Bible Church. No condemnation here. I'm I'm just going to tell you the way I see it. And I think you'll understand. and And I think you'll agree. There are a number of reasons for this. First of all, not all men are called, right? Not all men are called to do this work. And not everybody should think they're called. And and many who think they are called aren't called. I was the opposite. I was sure I wasn't called. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Not all men are called to serve God in in the church in this way. James actually says, not many of you should become teachers, brothers, because you know that those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Where the King James says a stricter judgment. That's scary. And secondly, some who might have been called are disqualified because of sin. Obviously, all men are sinners, right? We're all sinners. Paul called himself the chief of sinners, and uh, and I'm with him. I'm with him. Obviously, all men are sinners, but sometimes the the sinful behavior of one's past causes so many complications that it's either impossible or too painful to sort that mess out. How many men have we known over the years who've disqualified themselves from the ministry of preaching because they lost the reins of their flesh? And even within the last couple of years, it's really been stunning to me the number of men who we have heard about, who have shipwrecked their ministries. And, and I'm not saying that that couldn't happen to any one of us by the grace of God, but by the grace of God. And thirdly, many are not available, or I should say some are not available. Some men who are, who are gifted, who could do this job, are just not available. They may be Gifted and above reproach, but are just not available either because their career, which God has graciously given them, or because of illness or some extraordinary need in the home, it happens. Either restricting the ministry or or keeping you out of it completely, that too is sometimes from the Lord. There's no condemnation there. I'm, I'm just telling you how this happens. How can it be that in a really, really good church, we don't don't have like 20 guys lined up saying, hey, I could be an elder. I'd love to be an elder. I aspire to the office. I think my life's above reproach. It's never that way. It's never that way. Believe me, I've talked to a lot of faithful pastors. They all struggle to find faithful men who will step into the office of elder or pastor, teacher, and, and for whatever reason, it's either not their time it's not their calling, or their, their, their life It became a mess, and it can't be, the egg can't be unscrambled. I'm sure there are other reasons. Nevertheless, my experience at Calvary Bible Church has been that God has always, even in the midst of that, God has always provided faithful men when we've needed them, and he, he always does it in his time. And he never does it when we think it's time. <laughs> this is all especially relevant right now, as these past two weeks we've hosted the two public examinations of brothers in our own congregation who are finishing their path to eldership. Very long path that, uh, the, at least in, in our history, you can't even start the path until you've been here two or three years and demonstrated faithfulness, demonstrated the heart of a shepherd. Now yeah, we praise God for that. If you missed those two exams, I think we have recordings. Uh, Rod May was last week, and yesterday was Jason Cruz. Amazing, just amazing. I'm so instructed every time I hear um, one of these exams take place. Public examination. The church body got to ask questions four times yesterday. And it was, a, it was a sweet time of fellowship and instruction and getting to know these brothers and seeing their knowledge of the word, hearing their knowledge of the word, and seeing their humility. Uh, it, you are a blessed church. This is a blessed church. God keeps giving us competent, humble men who are devoted to the word of God and shepherding God's people, loving God's people. I was, uh, just as a side note, uh, uh, Friday, my day off. Um, I decided that some of the boxes in the office here that contain my library <laughs> <laughs> needed to come home because I needed at least a part of my library at home. And so I decided I'm going to come up here and get a bookshelf out of the, the pod that's sitting out there because that's where all of our furniture is. And I'm going to get a bookshelf and I'm going to get all of my, uh, from my, my counseling section of books um, because I, I need them. And and so uh, halfway here, I, I called the office, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I need Jason or, or Keith to help me carry this stuff. And I called, and, um, and I said, Katie, uh, can you put me over to Jason? And he said, she, said, uh, she said, well, I could, but he's not here right now. Uh, he's, it's early. It's like I'm calling at 8 a.m. And, uh, and she says, yeah, he's meeting with someone for breakfast, just some kind of discipleship thing. Oh, okay, well, give me Keith. Uh, well, Keith isn't available either. What's he doing? Uh, he's out with another young man for breakfast, discipling or something. And I, and I just hung up and laughed. I said, thank you, Lord. I mean, not for the help, because I'm not going to get any from these guys. But uh, praise the Lord. They're shepherding. They're shepherding. They're doing what God has called us to do. We praise God for that. These men are a gift of God, as are each of the elders Past and present. And notice there's a very definite apostolic succession in this verse. But it's not a popish succession. Rather, it's a succession of passing on the unvarnished, unadulterated truth of sound biblical teaching. And consider this. The only reason we are here today in listening to the word preached week after week is because of the exhortation towards sound doctrine that other men in the past have picked up. And been faithful with. And beloved, you understand that this is a major component of our fallible dependent vision for the future of Calvary Bible Church, right? We don't want to become a big church. You know, and for a lot of people, we are a big church. We feel a little bit small because we only can see half of us at once, right? The other group down the hall, they they're seeing half. And I want to remind that group that there's another half down here. Um, we don't want to grow large. We never have wanted to grow large. We never thought we would become as big as we are with our roughly 400 people. We wanted simply to grow as large as our facilities would allow at any given time and then send people out to plant new churches who will be faithful to preach and minister the word. But in order to do that, we have to have faithful men who will take the word with them we have to be committed to take what we have heard in the presence of many witnesses and entrust them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also we have to have men we have to have faithful men humble men men who love people and shepherd and men who can be an example to the church live if you want to know what christ how, how christ wants you to live follow us look at our lives It's what Paul's telling Timothy when he says, be an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And so my only question question is this, who are those future men? Who are those future men at Calvary Bible Church? I'm confident that some of them are young and eager and here and perhaps ready to be trained both here at the church and hopefully at a good seminary. But I'm praying that the Lord will also raise up older men who are saying, forget about seminary. That's not happening. But I know the word, and I love, I love God's people, and I'm ready to serve. Turn me loose. We praise God for, well, I don't want to name names, older men who have committed to doing that. Where is Russ? Hi, Russ. I'm not going to mention you. <laughs> and I'm sure Deborah is listening right now on on live stream, so just laugh, Deborah. We'll talk later. Um, Older men. I mean, that's what elder means, right? Literally means (laughs) gray-headed. I qualify, finally. Men who love Jesus, who are devoted to shepherding the flock of God by their ministry of the word, by their example. You know, uh, my son Calvin says, you know, Dad, I love my church, but I miss Calvary because of the older men when I come, even when I come to visit, the older men are saying, Calvin, what's the condition of your soul? Calvin, how's your battle against sin? Calvin, how's your time in the word? He said, I love that. I love that. Those are the kinds of men we want. And so I ask, where are you men? Where are you? Have you even considered this? I get it. I didn't either. I didn't either. So maybe it's time for some of you to consider it. I hope some of you right now are hearing through my voice the call of God upon your life. And by the way, in case some of you doubt there is any real danger of losing the gospel in the next generation, if you think I'm just making that up as maybe as as a tactic to get more of you to help fulfill our vision, consider this. I told you at the beginning, remember where Timothy is serving. Now, I'm going to quiz you. What was the name of the church he was serving? He was in Ephesus. Well, we hear about Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. We hear about uh, uh, the book, uh, I'm sorry, the the church of Ephesus in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. But you know there's another place we hear about the church of Ephesus? It's in Revelation. Why am I up here? You guys know this. (laughs) Revelation. Let me say it first. It'll make me feel better. (laughs) The sad reality is when we get to the book of Revelation, we hear Jesus say of the church of Ephesus, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. Therefore, he says, remember from where you have fallen and repent And do the deeds you did at first. What's that? When Paul was there. When Timothy was there. Or else, here's the warning, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless you repent. Today, I'm here to report there is no church in Ephesus. Perhaps they were driven out by persecution, we don't know. More likely, however, it's the probability is that the reason there is no true biblical church in Ephesus today is because somewhere along the way, the pastors got diverted away from the main thing. Somewhere along the way, the pastors of that church failed to entrust the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the whole counsel of God to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. I get it. The church had to move. Uh, The harbor was filling with silt. The harbor was getting further and further away. Uh, Maybe they had to do something. Who knows what happened? But there is no church there anymore. And perhaps what we read in Revelation was a harbinger of what was to come. And, and if it's not true for Ephesus, there are 10,000 other examples. Well, if you're hearing my voice and find yourself excited about the possibility that God may be calling you to pastor, there's only one thing more that you need to hear from this text. And put your crash helmet on, because here it comes, verse three through seven. Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, Paul puts us in this position of having to figure out what he means. And so we need to be careful that we don't insert too much into this. I see two things that, that are consistent with each of these three. And they are, number one, the call to, to pastoral ministry is a call to suffering. Now, it's hard for me to say because in this context, in, in, in this culture, I haven't suffered much. Not the way my brothers have suffered in um, Central Asia and in other places in Russia, in Uganda, and and now in China, probably more than anywhere else, Sudan. Um, I I have to say with David Livingston, I never made a sacrifice. Of course, he made all kinds of sacrifices, but you will suffer in a variety of ways and I won't go through them because um, my experience here isn't the point. But Paul's is, he suffered many, many things, and some of them carry over to even American pastors. And this is what you need to hear, brothers, if you're considering this. You need to remember Christ's powerful provision, and you need to remember the pastor's essential mission, but you also need to remember what Paul says is the Christian's preoccupation. Perhaps I should have called it the minister's preoccupation. There is a sense in which all of us need to be engaged at whatever level of ministry you're called to. If you're going to be faithful at any level of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ in this world, you have to be all in. Every time I meet with Eric Mock, he talks about being on mission, on mission, on mission. No matter what the context, you have to know there's, there's going to be resistance to your ministry. There's going to be pain. The question is not if you will suffer, but when, and with whom, and how severely, and how will it affect you? It's not a matter of will you suffer? Believe me, you will lose friendships. You will be falsely accused. You will experience things that you never thought would happen. And and Paul says, get ready. And I'm telling you, get ready. And you can never get ready. You can only be dependent and joyful. And so Paul says, come on, Timothy, suffer with me. The old preacher, church planter, is saying to the young one, come and assume your share of suffering. Ministry isn't about making a name for yourself. It's not about drawing big crowds. It's about proclaiming the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. And so if you choose to be faithful in ministry, it shouldn't be so that you can become a celebrity, a Christian celebrity, a bestseller, or get discovered somehow. Actually, it's more like becoming a soldier, and you're kind of drafted. At least I was. Or an athlete, or farmer. Here's Paul's three illustrations. What do the three analogies have in common? Well, simply this, that all three require hard work and suffering. And in the end, you get to share the reward. They all require suffering. And in the end, you get to share the reward. Consider the soldier. The term good soldier here means common soldier. This isn't, this isn't a ranking man. If you're a soldier in active service, you need to forget about comfort. Forget about your civilian pursuits. Forget about that business that you wanted to start. Forget about the school you wanted to attend. And I'm talking about soldier here. Forget about everything but pleasing your commander. Your, your ambition should be to please him. And that's your reward. The pleasure of God. No soldier gets entangled. The word entangle here means to braid or to interweave. He's basically saying, you gotta cut your, whatever you're woven into outside of this calling, you gotta cut it. You gotta cut it. Every day of the soldier's life, he lives on mission. A good soldier doesn't entangle himself with things that distract from the mission. His goal is to win the war, or to do his part in it. In fact, the Roman soldiers Roman soldiers weren't even allowed to get married until the term of their service was up, and which I read this week and, and have a hard time believing. Uh, often was twenty years. It wasn't a four year commitment. The thing thing that drives you if you're a soldier, Paul says, is pleasing the one who enlisted you. Your whole life, you are striving to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, Paul says. And Paul even said of himself in 2 Corinthians 5 9, therefore, whether at home or absent, whether whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, if I'm on earth or I'm in heaven, therefore, whether I'm at home or absent, I make it my ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. That's a reward in itself. And when your commander says, well done, well done, good and faithful soldier. Now, let me just skip on for time's sake here. Let's consider the athlete. By the way, Demas was a bad soldier. He deserted. And Paul tells us why. He loved the world. He was entangled in the world. And consider the athlete. It's athlos in Greek. Like the soldier, the athlete willingly sets aside his his rights, his privileges, and liberties for the sake of the goal. And what is the goal? Well, the same goal of every Olympic runner, to win. To win. I want to talk to you more about that next week from 1 Corinthians 9, because I think this is worth coming back to first century athletes put themselves through grueling training to prepare for the games. Their intense discipline and preparation were legendary. If, you, if people wanted to talk about hard work, the philosophers talked about engaging in, in serious, focused attention to study. They would use the word athlas. Everybody knew what that meant. The Olympic, in the Olympic Games, before the competitor could Could start in his event, he had to swear publicly an oath before the statue of Zeus that he had been in training for 10 months. But here's the thing. You can train for for 10 years for the competition, but if you don't compete according to the rules, you will be disqualified. Paul uses that word several times in his books. You will be disqualified. He mentions the rules which point to the need of personal obedience and submission to the same word of God that you preach to others. The athlete doesn't come to the race with a clever ideas about what the course should look like or what accommodation should be made for him or what kind of prize he should receive, what kind of shortcuts he might put into the system so that he can get to the finish line faster. No, he comes to the games understanding there are clear directives that he must follow And so it is with every faithful pastor. Is there freedom for creativity? Yes, there is freedom. But then it's a limited, it is a limited freedom. Pastors are not free to do as they please in ministry. We're not free to have clever directives that we invent for ourselves about how to minister the word of God and lead people to God. The word of God has given us those directives we don't have the freedom to reimagine church in hopes of making it more relevant and appealing to this generation. Nothing we do to make the gospel more appealing will prove to be relevant. It will only add to its irrelevance. And therefore, we preach the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that are comforting and uplifting We instruct, rebuke, we correct. Why? Because these are the mandates of Scripture. We preach sound doctrine and we refute those who contradict. Why? Because we want to? No. It's a mandate. It's it's according to the rules. We practice church discipline. We strive to be an an example in all the ways that, that Paul names, knowing that at the end of our race, the Lord, the righteous judge, will render a verdict on how we ran the race. And if we cut corners and we didn't follow the clear instructions of Scripture, we'll be disqualified. And once again, those who run well will receive a victor's crown. The crown here, it's two kinds of crown, crowns in, in Greek. One is the diadem, which is the crown of the king, and one is the stephanos, which is the, the, the laurel wreath, or sometimes it was made out of celery. <laughs> Um, but you 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 train for 10 months to be the one who would get the celery put on his head because it, it was a really big deal it didn't matter it didn't matter what it was made of right it didn't matter what it was made of you're the only one who's got it and once again those who run well will receive the victor's crown and and Paul emphasizes that point there there will be suffering but there will be reward and consider the farmer, and, and he gets it really explicit here about the reward, verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share in the crops. Again, it's, it's hard work, it's suffering. You don't get to do what you want, your flesh may want to do at any given time. That's what I want to show you again next week in, in, in more detail and more practicality. You have liberties, yes. But as a faithful follower of Christ... You willingly give up liberties. And I'm not saying you become a monk and, and, and you just don't exercise any liberty, but you're willing. But you're willing to rein in all of your liberties for the sake of those who don't know Christ, for the sake of the elect, Paul will say, and for the sake of his church. And I can tell you from personal experience that while ministry in the local church is hard, the rewards of serving Christ in his service in the church more than compensates for anything that we could remotely call suffering. And part of the reward is, you ready for this? Part of the reward for me is you. It's you. I love this church. I love how you minister to one another. I love the humility. I love the support that you give. Not just to me, but you give it more to one another I mean, every time there's a problem, every time there's an illness, every time there's a baby, um, there's a flood of people who show up and serve, and they do it with joy. And if you ask them why why they're here at a, a stranger's house, perhaps, and this happens fairly regularly, at a stranger's house with a meal, why do you do it? Have to. Have to. The love of Christ constrains me. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in my heart. I want to serve. I want whatever it is your gifting is, whatever it is your calling is. My wife is a gifted administrator, and people have asked her over the years, how is it that you can organize? And she's always said, look, if you're ministering in your giftedness, it's not as hard as you think. You can do it. And you got to minister outside of your giftedness a lot as well. But this is the reward. And then there's future reward. Paul said that our sufferings in this life are not to be compared to the glory, and the reward that is waiting for us. When we see our commander, when we see our coach, when we see the landowner, if you're the farmer, when you see him and, and he says to you, Well done, well done. It'll be worth it. Beloved, here's the point. The future of every faithful church is dependent upon its ability to train men to teach and preach the word. This is life for us. This is what God has called us to, and there needs to be more. I tell you, I've just given you a heads up. It won't be long before we plant another church, and we need at least 50 of you to leave, and, and preferably more. I mean, love you, but <laughs> And that church is going to need leaders, and they're going to take leaders. They're going to need new leaders. We're going to need new leaders, and God will provide them. I, I, I know he will. He always does, and I don't know who those men are going to be, but we're praying, and we're moving forward. You know that point last week about be dependent, right? Pray and ask and then move. We're moving. We're moving. We're being proactive in looking for leaders and trying to train them. And so pray for us. Pray for this church. And for those of you young men and old, I hope, who are, are thinking, maybe maybe that's me. Maybe that's me. Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to think about this. Maybe it's me. And some of you who may be thinking it's you, maybe not. And some of you are thinking maybe not. Maybe you. We don't know. But the Lord will make it evident when we need it to be evident. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you speak to us through it. and You pull back the veil sometimes and show us, show the church what's going on behind the scenes and why we do what we do. And and you reveal to us who lead and preach, you remind us of what our calling is. And you've certainly done that both this morning. And so we praise you, and we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name.